God, we are gathered here for a reason. And some of us find ourselves here um, on a Sunday morning with some anxieties, some, some wounds. Um, I, I just think back to my week of listening to their story of people being hurt by a church or a spiritual leader or an interpretation of Scripture. And um, I'm very aware that we all come to this room with different experiences and different things we think to be true and want to be true and want to know that are certain in our lives even. And I, Lord, just want to humbly submit that this is, um, this is a, a family of people that need you deeply, to know you deeply, to experience your healing. And God, may that be the case as we step into this um, magnificent, beautiful picture of worship, of hope. God, give us the grace and um, the ability to, to wrestle with this in our lives, and not in just our lives personally, but in our lives as a community, as we live in this moment on this earth. We pray these things in your name. Amen. I uh, want to do some work here before we get in. And I want to I just set a few ground rules. First of all, I cannot say everything about this text. And second of all, I don't know everything about this text. And I, I just want you to just, from the top, I'm not Revelation Bible answer guy. I'm going to do my best to usher us into a interacting with Revelation that I think has um, been really meaningful for me. And I think of us show up with different backgrounds when it comes to in this room and you don't even know what I'm talking about. Uh, some of you walk in this room with decades of scripture and studying of scripture in your background. In fact, you may have spent a time studying this, this book. Um, now, my encouragement for you is, if that is you, that I want you to listen differently. Typically, a lot of us, we are trained to listen, especially in a setting like this, for what we agree with. And when we agree with something that somebody says, typically there's just a real neurological response that says, yeah. And I want to help you set that aside. 
because we're going to enjoy digging into this text together, but we're going to really struggle with it. It's going to, we're going to wrestle with it. And what we want to do today is we want to lay some groundwork. And it's going to be awful and boring. And you guys are like, what's new? But it's going to have just some, like, just some nerdiness to it. Um, because it's really important that we lay groundwork. Because there, has anybody seen the movie... <laughs> This might date you, but A Thief in the Night. Have you heard of this movie? It is, a, it is a rendering of the book of Revelation, I, I want to say the 70s. Am I right? Um, and if you haven't seen it, um, well, it, it'll probably, you probably feel it has like a Sharknado feel to it if you haven't. <laughs> But it's like a very, like, what is happening? And for people who saw it, um, it scared them. It was a scary kind of epic. Uh, it was meant to draw people into accepting Jesus. And um, I just don't think that's the best method of getting the beautiful message of Jesus across to people. I mean, um, we can agree to disagree on that, but... Um, and Revelation itself has been used to induce a lot of fear um, in the lives of followers of Jesus. And so my, my goal here is to just maybe we should just back up a, a bit and, and think about what are the foundational tools necessary for us to understand this book. And so this is the most important teaching going forward because it's going to kind of set um, some rails for us. And at least, um, here's the thing, it's going to be the most important teaching, but probably the least interesting. Just setting that up right now. So I hope you've got coffee. We're going to get into this. Um, now, not surprisingly, there are four different approaches to Revelation, and we're going to throw these up on the screen. The first one is called the futurist approach, okay? The futurist approach to Revelation is everything after Revelation 4 is a blueprint for the end times, okay? So once we're done talking about the specific churches mentioned in Revelation, everything else is, is coming in the future. Um, and this is something that um, most of us, if you grew up in an evil church in the last 150 years, this is what you're used to. The second one is the historicist approach. And this basically takes Revelation and says this is a predictive, uh, uh, in a sense, flow for the church. So basically, everything that has happened is kind of like, an, uh, like a moment in church history. So it's very predictive still. It's just not future. It's about the church throughout history. The third one is a preterist view, and this just basically means before. Okay? It's a, it, the phrase is like, this is what happened in the past. So basically, it's predictive, but it all happened in the past. Okay? This all happened, it already happened, and it's over with, okay? Now, not a lot of evangelicals are in this camp. The fourth 
um, and this is kind of where I land, is the idealist approach. And this is, this isn't, this is non-history, meaning this is timeless, a timeless picture of a battle between good and evil, and it's applicable to time, but it's not about any specific time. Now, some of you are gonna, you're already like, I'm gonna email. By the way, you can email. Um, there are a not, there's a way, we're going to show you this at the end, and you can look, um, if you actually do the little scanner QR, you can send in your anonymous questions. And, um, and we will try to, I'm going to try to answer some at the beginning each week, okay? Only if they're good. But most of us have been kind of in the futurist camp. And we're going to get into why that is, and there's a reason why that is, but um, I just wanted to real quick also mention, actually, I'm going to pass this part. Um, Carissa, don't worry about the myths part. We're going to deal with that later. Um, but today, we're going to talk about two things, genre and context. And some of you are like, fantastic. I mean, you stayed up late watching the CSU-CU game, and it was exciting, and you're like, what could I do to keep the buzz going? <laughs> I know I could talk about genre and context, but here's where we're at. What is genre? Genre is a literary style. And genre, I'm going to throw this up on the screen, it's a category of artistic, musical, literary composition characterized by a particular form or content. So, what do we mean by that? Well, if I say to you, a rabbi, a priest, and a pastor walk into a bar, what's coming next? A joke. You guys are good at genre. What's, what about this? Roses are red. What's coming next? A po probably an old crappy poem. Yeah. Um, how about this one? If I say a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, what's coming next? <laughs> Correct. A genre of musical. Um, it's science fiction in the form of Star Wars. Now, we all know genre. You walk into a, do you remember, Bar remember when there was bookstores? That was cool. You walk into a Barnes and Noble and they had those green signs that told you the category of book you were looking for. Now, th for, for especially for the front row, you guys don't know much about bookstores, but that's, <laughs> books are, <laughs> um, Barnes and Noble, it's great, it's helpful, but there's a science section, and then a science fiction section. Which one's true? Science. Science. Well, even now, people are like, whatever. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> oh, do you get what I'm saying? Like, there's, you read those books differently. The problem is, many of us don't know how to do that with Scripture. We pick up the Bible, 
And there's this entire bookstore <laughs> here. And we tend to just read it the same. We read it, I mean, what are we talking about here? We've got narrative, we've got poetry, we've got letters, we've got prophetic writings, we have historical records. And we said this back at the beginning of the year when we talked about Scripture. Uh, we have a, a kind of a definition of what to, to, to go for here. It says, the, the Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human that together tell a unified story which leads us to Jesus. So, there are different genres in Scripture, and we've got to pay attention to the clues as to what we're reading. So unbelievably important. Because everything depends on what genre Revelation is. Okay? So what is the genre of Revelation? Well, I'm glad you asked. We are going to spend some time reading from the text. And this isn't me coming up with what genre it is. The text tells us what genre it is. Okay? Revelation 1, verse 1. It says, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants what must soon take place. So our first vocab word is <laughs> revelation. We're going to jump back and forth between some vocab here because this is super important. This was the word, and, and we're going to say this together, apocalypsis. Apocalypsis. This is where we get the word apocalypse. Now, here's the problem. Our American version of apocalypse is not this, okay? When you watch apocalyptic movies, what are we watching? We're watching like The Day After Tomorrow or like The Rock or like The Rock. Just every movie of The Rock. But that's not what this is. This is, uh, the, the word actually literally means unveiling, like to take the cover off of something, to let it be seen, all right? So, apocalypsis is a kind of literature, and it's a kind of literature that's very common in the first century. In fact, there's Roman apocalyptic literature, there's there's Greek apocalyptic literature, and there is Jewish apocalyptic literature, and it's all stuff that you can actually read. Now, there's certain things, like I talk about when genre, that's really important for us to understand. All apocalyptic literature have certain traits to them. They're all very similar. Just like poetry has certain traits, just like Science fiction has certain traits. Apocalyptic literature has certain traits. One of them is its narrative form. I mean, it's like a sequence of story. One of them is, and this is the most important one, it's filled with symbolism. Filled with symbolism. All of the numbers, all of the colors are symbolic. We're going to camp here for a second. Okay, so when it says, actually right here in, in 
verse 2, I believe it's verse 2, verse, verse 1 still, it says, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. That word, made it known, actually is a Greek word that means to symbolize or to signify. So there's this, right at the beginning, we're given this picture that this is to symbolize, right, the message that's to come. So the best way to communicate this idea of what apocalyptic literature, symbolic literature is, is to show you this political cartoon. Does anybody know what this is about? Well, we just had an anniversary of September 11th. Now, for those of you who were around <laughs> during that moment, there was a palpable sense of, oh, someone's going to go down, right? Do you remember that feeling as an American, those days following September 11th? Where like, Republican, Democrat, doesn't matter, you're like, oh, we're going to mess some people up. That was the feeling. And this is the political cartoon. Now, symbolically, this represents America preparing to do damage. Now, if I'm going to take that literally, so 2,000 years, someone finds this image. 2,000 years later, someone finds this image and they're like, oh, it's an eagle uh, with a nail file sitting on a stool. Do you think they're getting the message? No. And yet, there's something bigger going on in this message that you and I understand, right? The symbols we're about to read would have made sense to the original audience. They would have understood all the things that John is saying. And so there's so much more we can talk about when it comes to, um, to genre of apocalyptic literature. Um, there's a sense of urgency behind it. That's why we have these phrases like, it must soon take place. That covers all of apocalyptic literature. Um, other apocalyptic literature has things like a, just a very pessimistic view of the present time. And, and, and it's, huge, it's characterized by dualism, and dualism is like good and evil, right and wrong, black and white, right? We find that all throughout Revelation. Now, first genre, apocalypsis, right? Verse 2 goes like this. Um, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads about the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart, take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Our next conversation is about this word prophecy. And this is really, really important. Prophecy in Scripture is not about prediction, per se. It is, it talks about what could happen, 
but it's almost always about calling the people of God to faithfulness in light of what could happen. So prophecy isn't about predicting the future. It's about, it's about hearing, the, hearing the words of God and then reorienting our lives towards a better outcome. Does that make sense? Unfortunately, our American version of prophecy is all about prediction. It's about decoded. It's like Dan Brown, right? It's about figuring out the signs and tuning in all the codes. I mean, I'm just going to be honest with you. So many people have used Revelation, and this is going to sound like a hard statement, as like a Christian Ouija board to figure out what's to come. But that's not what prophecy is. Prophecy is drawing the people of God, uh, getting hold of the people of God like on either side of their face and say, listen, this is what's going to happen if you keep going this direction. One scholar writes this, this is particularly the case when we remember that prophecy in the Old Testament wasn't primarily about predicting things. It was about presenting reality from God's point of view. Foreign nations are powerless. Idols are worthless false gods. And the Old Testament prophets called people to respond to that reality by being faithful to the one true God. So the prophecy we're about to meet in Revelation is straight out of the Old Testament playbook. It's straight out of that kind of field, which is the reason why many of us don't really recognize it. I mean, let's just be honest. We're not familiar with the Old Testament prophets. We spend little time in that. So the things that are straight out of the Old Testament go right over our heads. The things that we're going to read in Revelation that are like, oh, that's Daniel. Usually it goes right over our heads. And so the goal of prophetic literature was never to forecast or calendarize, but it was to call a generation to faithfulness. And the fact that there was a heavenly reality that is different from the earthly reality that we're experiencing. So these are the rails we're going to run on, okay? Revelation 1.4, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before the throne. What does that sound like? John, to the seven churches. Yep. So we have an apocalyptic piece of literature that's prophetic wrapped up into a letter. That's what we have. This whole apocalyptic prophetic writing is dressed up as a letter to seven flesh and blood house churches in Asia Minor. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. Very Trinitarian greeting. Um, but it was also a phrase used to describe Zeus. And they would have known that. 
and from the seven spirits before his throne. And here's where we're introduced to the number seven. This whole series is brought to you by the number seven. We're going to get into that next week. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And all of that is very Old Testament imagery. And rulers of the kings of the earth, well, you'll hear that here in a second, and it's a very Roman phrase. It says, I, John, your brother, and companion in the suffering and kingdom, patient endurance that are, that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Key point to remember, as a letter, this would have made sense to them. This letter would have made sense to them. Like when they heard this letter, they weren't like, man, I wish that 2000, we were, I wish we were 2,000 years in the future and an American could decode it for us. I mean, just think of the arrogance of that. <laughs> just, we've finally cracked the code of revelation. Those poor people missed it. Verse 10, on the Lord's day I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. You're going to hear about trumpets. There's going to be a lot of trumpets. Which said, write on a scroll. It's going to be a ton of scrolls. And you, will, and you will send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia. We got one of those and Laodicea, <laughs> right? Two streams of context for us and in, in content in the books, uh, book of Revelation. And you need to hear this. This is like, these are rails we're running on. The first is the Old Testament, 400 plus illusions and references to the Old Testament. Okay? And the second, and this is huge, is the rise of the Roman imperial cult. Now, we've talked about genre, and let's talk about context, and then we'll land the helicopter. The plane. The public story of Rome begins with the fall of Troy. If you're not familiar with Roman history, I think um, you might get it. And from the ashes of that emerges a hero. Seeds of world empire. This is part of the myth and the lore behind Rome. The ancient writer Virgil, the promise of Zeus, the king of the gods. The Romans would rule the sea and all the lands about it. The poet Virgil refers to what uh, they would call orbis terrarium, meaning they saw the Mediterranean as the center of the world and everything else around it, outside of it. And the further they went, they expanded Roman rule, okay? Circle of the lands is what they called it, the circle of the lands. And this was the world that counted. This is the world that mattered. 
And the mythology behind Zeus says that Zeus asserts that the destiny of Rome will be to bring the whole world under law, the dominion of law, Roman law. Now, you've probably heard of the, the wings of the Roman eagle, this, this concept that every, everywhere Rome went, the eagle went, um, and we see this depicted in a lot of modern-day films. Um, and the Roman eagle overshadowed more and more of the Mediterranean basin, and, and it exercised, and listen to this phrase, this phrase is an actual phrase from the writings of Virgil that we read in Revelation 13:7. Authority over every tribe, people, and nation. John is actually taking actual Roman propaganda and saying, no, this belongs to God. Uh, Minucius Felix, the second century Christian who wrote of the Romans that their power and authority has occupied the circuit of the whole world. So he's referring to that whole Orbis Terrarium. Octavius, thus it has propagated its empire beyond the paths of the sun and the bounds of the ocean itself. And then there was another line that we see in Romans, uh, Revelation 17, 18, that Rome was thus indeed seen as the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. John is taking actual Roman propaganda, we'll get into all this, and turning it back. Plutarch, who is a contemporary of John, this is one more quote from the histories, celebrated the rise of Rome, uniting the Mediterranean region, and he said this, Rome developed and grew strong and attached to herself. We're going to meet who herself is. It's the goddess Roma. Attached to herself not only nations and peoples, but foreign kingdoms beyond the sea. And then at last, the world found stability and security when the controlling power entered into a single unwavering cycle uh, and world order of peace. Now, background over, mostly. We believe that this letter, this apocalyptic prophetic epistle, was written in the 90s AD, which was around the time of Domitian. And we're going to spend a whole day talking about Domitian. You guys are like, great, when can I come back to church? Because this sounds boring. But we are going to talk about him because so much of the worship language that we read is actually co-opted by John and used to worship Yahweh. So Domitian, he's got hymns sung to him uh, that we start to see in chapter 4. And... um, The way Domitian planned for his own worship, this is something called emperor worship, um, imperial worship, was that they set up something called the imperial cult. And this was going on before Domitian, but Domitian like downshifted and went for it. 
And what they would do was there was temples and shrines and altars and cult images dedicated to Augustus and then more and more the emperors as uh, all, the way, all the way up till Domitian. And by the end of the first century, 35 cities in Asia Minor, okay, held this honorific title of temple warden. Uh, the, the, Latin word, uh, the Greek word is neokoros. And it's an imperial cult site. Okay. The reason why this is important is these seven churches, all seven cities, had cultic sites. All seven of them. Little house church in these cities, but all seven had these sites. All but Thyatira had imperial temples. Five, all but Philadelphia and Laodicea, had imperial altars and subsidized priesthoods. So this was like the world they were swimming in. They were swimming in a world that connected the worship of the empire to civic competition. Meaning, Arvada. Anybody not live in Arvada here? Got some Westminster, some Broomfield. Okay. So it would be like our cities were in competition for each other, to, with each other, to get the, the emperor to give, grant us favor. So you would set up these massive imperial worship sites. The emperor would then bequeath to you an aqueduct or maybe some other, like maybe dredge your ports. You could have more economic trade. And so the whole goal was to become a temple warden. And Ephesus was competing with Laodicea, which was competing with Pergamum. And it was just this big, huge mess. And the pressure was to get on board with it. As a citizen of Pergamum, your job was to worship Caesar and to help push forward the, the goals of your city. Now, imagine you are a tiny little house church, 15, 20 people, and you are so far in the minority, it's not even funny. And the pressure to worship is getting stronger and stronger. Everything you did, every act you had, every marketplace transaction had a taint of worship to it. And it was just becoming Shows up to your little house church with a letter. Not just a letter that they would read, like kind of sometimes, I mean, Brad did a great job today reading scripture. Everybody, Brad, yes. It wasn't like how we, it wasn't like how we normally read scripture, you know, where it's just like, and then there was God, and then, you know, it was, it was performed. They would memorize this letter and think about it. No TV, no like anything. The words brought about imagination and these unbelievable epic scenes of angels and, 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 and beasts with horns and 
the deep and all of these things. And this is all being read to you. And you get it because you hear the propaganda of Rome twisted and put back as, a, as, a, as like a, as like a the vision from who, of who God is. And you have all this Old Testament language from Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah, all that stuff coming to the surface. And the reader had the entire book memorized and you're just sitting there and you're hearing it. And part of you just wants to stand up and clap. And part of you wants to just amen. Part of you wants to ooh and ah and booyah and whatever, because you're hearing something that is actually hitting you in such a way that you're hopeful. That you don't feel like the boot of Rome is on your neck. These images and these phrases are something we don't understand. The next 13 weeks, maybe 12, whatever. Old Testament, Roman imperial cult. And when we're not familiar with either of those, and we read scripture the same all the way through, we're bound to come up with some weird stuff. Like, real weird stuff. Guys, uh, I grew up in a a little Christian school I went to, and it was just like, Gorbachev, Mikhail Gorbachev was the Antichrist. Now, if those of you don't remember... Like there was this big Cold War thing. I won't get into it, but it was just like this. Oh, that's the Antichrist. We're like, oh, okay, that's the Antichrist. (laughs) There's been so much fear with this book and it's been peddled and so much money been used to manipulate people into, into conversion instead of hopeful discipleship. And that's what the goal was. To be full, to be full, of dollars have been used to scare the junk out of us, and we just want to present revelation in a different way, one that provokes us to hope. And you're like, Ryan, how do you know that you're accurate in your representation of revelation? I'm just just going to humbly submit to you, because revelation tells us what it is. It tells us what it is. It's an apocalyptic, prophetic letter to real flesh and blood house churches in Asia Minor. And it's symbolic, apocalyptic, it's symbolic, it confronts us, prophetic, okay? And it's to, and it's a letter which means it made sense to them. And the goal isn't that you buy everything we say over the next 13 weeks. It's not the goal. Wrestle with it. Type me on an anonymous email. Whatever. The goal is that it provokes us to faithful discipleship to Jesus. So a couple things for you. I have a recommendation if you want to go further. There's a great book written by a guy named Norman. And we'll try to give this, some of this to you as we go. It's called Reading Revelation Responsibly. It's brought to you by the letter R, apparently. Um, so if you would like to do more reading, the next thing I want you to know is after the first two weeks, the first two weeks are kind of like a setup. Um, on September 26th, Tuesday night, I'm going to be here 
you can come, we can talk. Bring some of your questions. We can talk about some of this. Um, And then, like I said, you can send your questions in. Um, But here's what you need to know. We are not going to be preoccupied with the meanings of certain symbols. Okay? Um, uh, The identity of the beast, the place of Armageddon, the length of the millennium, because these are literally the most, uh, the least significant aspect of the letter. The Antichrist is not mentioned in Revelation, nor is the rapture. And one of the many problems with that template of reading Scripture that way is a bunch of people get really drenched in fear. And we begin to, it's a natural human thing, when fear creeps up, we begin to see other people as the other the enemy, and we're not loving, and we're not learning, and we're not blessing. And the last thing followers of Jesus need right now is to be fearful. It's just enough. So why did we name this faithful dissidents? Well, a dissident is a person who opposes official policy, especially authoritarian state policy, But dissidents also aim to change the world. And I sincerely believe that we have lost that part of our vocation as followers of Jesus. And so as I close, we're actually going to come to the table, but I want to just mention something as I close. What you will find throughout this whole writing, John operates with two opposing sides. Remember, apocalyptic literature is very dualistic two opposing sides. The characters we will meet are, we will read from one side, there is God and the Lamb, and the seven spirits, and the woman, and the seven churches, and allegiant witnesses, and the four living beings, and the 24 elders, and the good angels, all of whom are marching towards uh, the kingdom of Jerusalem. And on the other side, we will meet the dragon, and the wild things, and the demonic and human servants, all of whom are embodied in Babylon. And we're going to talk about Babylon. And to read Revelation well, we need to know, we need to get to know John's characters as our companions. And the message to the seven churches was a reminder to choose your team. And it's one of John's big rhetorical strategies. Choose Babylon or the New Jerusalem. Choose Team Lamb or Team Dragon. (laughs) And you become, if you choose Team Lamb, you become a faithful dissident who resists Team Dragon. And the goal is to become hopeful. Not cliche hopeful, Biblical hope is rooted in the reality of disappointment and yet the awareness that the destination is still worth the journey. I made the, I made the case of flying in an airplane a few weeks back in this idea that um, many times, you know, I find myself, I get the middle seat. 
And usually on the way home, I'm, I'm much more cool with the middle seat because I know I'm going home. And some of you, I mean, like I've said before, like the plane seats are made for 80-pound 12-year-olds. And, and some of you, um, uh, you, you're just cold all the time. And I'm, it's, it, I don't have that problem. And so when I sit in a seat and I'm next to a large guy on my left, large guy on my right, I'm like, I'm like, but I'm going home. I'm going home. And so we're going to do communion together. But we're going to do a little different this morning, and I'm going to invite the band up. What I want you to do is just a very simple little thing. You're going to come up and you're going to get...